This is Expand the Zone, a Major League Baseball podcast brought to you by The Score. Let's just be above replacement level. I don't give a crap. Sign Bryce Harper! I want to see good players hit baseballs far and strike out. Oh my god, the size of that man. This is a tangent, but whatever. I can say in earnest that I I do think the end is near. What is going on, people? It is Monday, October 19th. I'm your host, Jonah Bierenbaum, joined remotely by my intrepid co-host, Michael Bradburn. That's me. On the docket today, we'll recap the League Championship Series round and tee up the World Series with a position-by-position breakdown of the Los Angeles Dodgers and Tampa Bay Rays. Before we get into that, a friendly reminder to download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android, and if you dig Expand the Zone, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, so be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Well, sir, when we last spoke, there were four teams vying for that big cake. Now, there are two. The LCS is over and done with, and what a round it was. Each best-of-seven series went to seven games, and both Game 7s were decided by a margin of two runs or less. It was highly entertaining, and before we jump into our World Series preview, let's take a few minutes here to break down what happened in the League Championship Series round. And let's start with the American League Championship Series, in which the Tampa Bay Rays bested the Houston Astros in seven games, albeit after squandering a 3-0 lead in the series. That results, the Rays advancing, winning their first pennant since 2008, was no doubt a satisfying one for baseball fans collectively, who wished ill upon the Astros in the wake of their sign-stealing scandal. But at this series, it really should be noted, very easily could have gone the Astros' way. They out-hit the Rays in the series. These two staffs allowed the exact same number of earned runs, and ultimately, no team definitively outplayed the other team. The Rays just did a better job of sequencing their hits and of capitalizing on the Astros' mistakes, notably two brutal throwing errors from second baseman Jose Altuve, one in Game 2 and one in Game 3. But truly, if you take out Altuve's case of the yips and eliminate just a few of the truly incredible defensive plays that the Rays made throughout these seven games, this series maybe ends differently and the Astros end up advancing to the World Series for a second year in a row. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm kind of glad we didn't do a mid-series podcast. I think we would have if there were breaks, but like if we did do a mid-series episode, I would have just been gloating because the I remember the Springer would-be base hit that's stolen by Hunter Renfro, and I believe Game 3 just looked like it defeated the Astros. Like, the Astros were just done. And, of course, that ended up not being the case. The Astros stormed back. And like you said, yeah, like, these two teams were incredibly evenly matched. Very differently matched, though, in that the Rays succeeded off defense and run prevention, whereas the Astros succeeded on, like, I hesitate to say pitching performances because really it seemed at times like the Rays were getting themselves out. Save for Framber Valdez, I don't really think any of the Astros pitchers performed especially well. Is that fair to say? Zach Greinke stepped up pretty big in Game 4. The strikeout of Randy Rosarena and Mike Brasso later that same inning in the 6th were pretty insane, to be honest. Yeah, but to your point, the Astros' offense, which had looked so 
incredible against Oakland was very much stymied by this Rays staff. And honestly, we shouldn't be surprised at this point because this is what the Rays do. It doesn't matter how potent the offense they're facing is. They shut them down and they do it in the most unconventional of ways. You may not like the aesthetics of the style of baseball that they play. You may not like the fact that they don't allow their starters, no matter how good they are, no matter how dominant they're looking, to face an opposing team's lineup for the third time, but you can't argue with the success. They are going to stick to their game plan. They're going to honor the data no matter what. They see, for instance, the decision that Dusty Baker made to allow Zach Granke to continue in that pivotal sixth inning in game four as flawed decision-making. Kevin Cash would not have made that decision because it didn't conform to the data. And they are truly unbound by anything other than analytics. That's why they took out Charlie Morton in Game 7 when he had allowed all of two hits and had yet to allow a run and had thrown only 66 pitches. That's one of the reasons why they're here and why they've turned this roster of largely anonymous players into a pennant winner that's now four wins shy of a World Series title. Yeah, I like that you brought up Morton too because... I mean, I get why some fans would look at the Rays and be like, this is not fun to watch. I I get it. It is fun to me, but I'm not going to taste police. But in the instance of the Rays, they're going to slow down momentum of the game on purpose by making pitching changes during the most high leverage moments. And those are the moments that you don't want, you know, the game to cut to commercial. However, Charlie Morton did have runners on the corners in that instance, and he allowed a 1,000 OPS to hitters Uh, third time through the order. Charlie Morton has one of the most drastic third time through the order penalties. So it made sense to go there. So they're doing what is allowed in the rules to win baseball games. But if people don't want to watch it, that's fine. Yeah. And having said all that, as masterful and well-managed as their pitching staff was, I don't know if they win this series either without Randy Rosarena continuing to hit like Ted Williams. Like it's absolutely ridiculous how he's just put this team on his back throughout the postseason (laughs) insane it it felt like nobody else on this team was hitting at all other than a couple like Mike Zanino home runs it felt like nobody else hit the ball yeah he put up a 1152 OPS in the league championship series and it was his lowest OPS of the three postseason rounds thus far yeah he's washed (laughs) but that was kind of the point I was making earlier too where like The Astros pitching didn't really impress me that much. It was just the Rays hitting that went like Mm -hmm. extremely cold. Like Joey Wendell looks kind of terrible at the plate and he's routinely hitting in the top at least two thirds of the lineup. And I don't know, like they're going to need more help going forward on the offensive side than just Randy Rosarena. Yeah, couldn't agree more. They've shut down Toronto and they've shut down the Yankees and they've shut down Houston, and as good as the Yankees' offense and Houston's offense is, it's not the Dodgers' offense, and they can't expect to hold Los Angeles's ridiculously deep lineup to two or three runs every single night, but we'll get there. First, let's move on. Let's talk about the National League Championship Series, which, again, lasted seven games. The Atlanta Braves, who swept their way through the first two rounds of the postseason, Also took the first two off the Los Angeles Dodgers, somewhat unexpectedly, and then put the Dodgers in a 3-1 hole after Game 4. However, the Dodgers, who have had so many 
October heartbreaks in recent years didn't crap out. Instead, they navigated a historic comeback from down 2-0 and then down 3-1 to advance to the World Series for the third time in the last four years. And had the Braves had a little bit more depth, particularly on the pitching side, I think they would have been able to pull this off. I don't think they would have lost three consecutive games to end the series. Only once during the regular season did the Braves lose three consecutive games. But having so thoroughly taxed their bullpen to that point in the series, to that point in the postseason, they were just out of gas by the sixth, seventh game of the series. And the Dodgers the whole time refused to relent. They just kept grinding out at bats. They kept doing what they do, which is just competing at an extraordinarily high level. And in the end, in game seven, it came down to the Dodgers capitalizing off of a terrible base running mistake by the Atlanta Braves and by the Dodgers league leading offense getting to the Braves bullpen after they had been so worn out over the previous six games. Yeah, I mean, the Braves do kind of have that starting rotation depth too, but they just weren't healthy. And I don't think we're talking about the Dodgers advancing if Mike Soroka and or Cole Hamels are healthy. That was essentially the difference. Even though Bryce Wilson shoved, and I don't really understand how he did, somehow he flummoxed these Dodgers hitters. I I like the point that you brought up about the Braves just looking taxed by the end too. This Dodgers team is going to make you pay too. Like Not only are you having to pitch consecutive days as a reliever, but you're going to end up seeing the same hitters over and over again. And these Dodgers hitters, like, they're they're like all studying and like unrelenting in like beating you the next time they see you. As a series drags on, I think it does sway in the Dodgers' favor because they get that familiarity. I don't think Max Fried giving up two home runs in game six is unrelated to them just like getting used to seeing Max Fried at that point. Yeah, and when you look at sort of who shined for the Dodgers in this series, yes, Corey Seager was sort of in a league of his own in that respect, but there were so many different players who contributed, and it wasn't surprising that they contributed. Will Smith, Julio Urias, Kike Hernandez. Like, everyone on this roster is good and capable of having an impact, and that was apparent in their series against Atlanta. Yeah, and they talk about it a lot on the broadcast, too, but like p- players like Jock Peterson and Kike Hernandez somehow end up elevating their game in the postseason and I I think that's an extreme testament to the Dodgers preparations and like the way this coaching staff prepares hitters for how they're going to be attacked by opposing teams and again like over a seven game championship series in seven days there's not a lot of time for teams to change strategies that's what we saw with the Dodgers like the Dodgers just knew what to attack on Max Fried the second time out this Dodgers team is very good They sure are. And on that note, let's pivot to our World Series preview because the 116th edition of the Fall Classic gets underway Tuesday night at Globe Life Field in Arlington. And despite all the talk about how the expanded postseason could result in a decidedly unpredictable and off-putting World Series matchup, wouldn't you know it, it's the teams with the two best records in Major League Baseball who end up vying for the commissioner's trophy extremely thankful for that I, just quickly what have been your thoughts of globe life field so far too hideous it looks Re- absolutely terrible on television it's dark and it's dreary and the lighting has like a real serial killer's basement vibe to it and it's also just 
cavernous. It's absolutely huge. There have been so many balls hit at Globe Life Field that you think should be home runs, and that would be home runs at the majority of Major League Baseball's ballparks. Yeah, it it really is not fun on the eyes in any way. And there were a couple of games where I was like, why don't they open the dome? And then they talked about it later on the broadcast, and they were like, well, dome's open. And I was like, where's the light? I don't understand why it's so dimly lit. Like It looks like no sun gets in there. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. It is growing on me a little bit because, I mean, I don't know if this is just because the Dodgers and Braves have such good defensive outfielders, but the eight-foot walls in the outfield, too, are allowing for like very, very cool home run robberies, and those make great highlights. I, it's I enjoy true. that. I will say eight-foot outfield walls should be mandated because you have to at least allow for the possibility of a home run robbery. Like stadiums that have 10-foot walls, what were you thinking? That's yeah, a design that's not, flaw. It's no fun. Although I'm sure Mookie Betts would find a way to steal a home run over like a 14-foot wall. That's how good he is. Yeah, why didn't they put him in left field at Fenway Park? (laughs) (laughs) He could have stolen one over the Green Monster. I believe it. Honestly, that is definitely the one question I have for the Red Sox pertaining to Mookie Betts. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, let's tee up this bad boy. uh, And let's break it down position by position. And let's start behind the plate. The Dodgers have Will Smith as their primary catcher. Austin Barnes as their backup. The Rays have Mike Zunino as their primary catcher. And Michael Perez as their backup. And to me, the Dodgers have a clear edge in this department. Will Smith, who was so impressive as a rookie last year, only cemented himself as one of the game's premier offensive catchers this year. He led his position in WRC+. He finished second in OPS, and he just hits the cover off the ball. His batted ball metrics are ridiculous. He's not exactly pudge behind the plate. Uh, His pitch framing stats were lousy in 2020, albeit over a tiny sample, and he's always been about league average in terms of throwing out potential base dealers, but it's not like he's a liability behind the plate, and if the Dodgers do want to prioritize catcher defense on a given night, they can roll with Barnes, who's one of the game's elite pitch framers, and just use Smith at DH like they did in in game six of the NLCS, so in any event, the Dodgers are sitting pretty, and their catchers are just better than Tampa Bay's, both of whom are defense-oriented, despite the fact that Mike Zunino has gone deep in each of the first three postseason rounds. He's hit 182 since the start of 2018. He's in there for his defense. He's in there for his ability to manage a staff that is so diverse and has so many different profiles, and Michael Perez does the same. He's not an offensive-oriented catcher either, and I understand why a run-suppression-centric team like Tampa Bay, would prioritize catcher defense over all else. But ultimately, the Dodgers are just so much better in this department, in my opinion. Yeah, we don't have to mull this one too much. It's clear edge to the Dodgers. Austin Barnes would be the starting catcher on the Rays right now. Um, Mike Zanino has gone deep four times this postseason, which is pretty remarkable, but he also only has eight hits total over his 37 at-bats. And Will Smith, I don't think it can be overstated, is probably the best catcher in the game. Better than Real Muto. Uh, I'd still take Real Muto, but he's definitely in that uppermost tier, which is crazy because he's played less than 162 regular season games, but you simply don't see hitters of that caliber catching and, and doing a competent job even behind the plate. First base, Dodgers have Max Muncy and the Rays, well, they don't really believe in everyday players, so they have a coalition of first basemen. It's primarily G-Man Choi. Yandy Diaz will also start against left-handers. Occasionally, Mike Brasso will play some first base. 
And this one is much closer. I don't, I don't even know who I would give the edge to given how Max Muncy dropped off this year. He was a league average hitter this year by WRC+. His batting average was below the Mendoza line, and his batted ball metrics took a step backwards. Now, he has been swinging it better in the postseason. Hasn't hit for a ton of power, but getting on base at a ridiculous rate. And he's always had great plate discipline. But don't sleep on the Rays committee because they've combined for a 1,000 OPS this postseason, Tampa Bay's first baseman have. And that's a quietly really solid timeshare, if you ask me. What do you think? Who's, who's better? Yeah, I think it's really close offensively. So I do kind of lean towards giving some credit to G-Man Choi's defense, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, he's looked unbelievable over there at first base, making Joey Wendell look like a gold glove caliber third baseman with some pretty errant throws that have been very difficult plays for Choi. And he's made I like almost all of them. I do think Muncie is like a better hitter, but yeah, like narrow edge to the Rays and their Choi led mm. committee. Yeah, I gotta say, I was pretty unimpressed with Max Muncie's defense in the championship series. There were a few balls that were hit not that far to his left or to his right. Admittedly, they were hit hard, but they seemed like makeable plays to me, and he came up empty. And obviously, that's a, a tiny sample observation, but those are the kind of plays, if the Dodgers lose that series, you look back on and say, oh, if Muncie comes up with those balls, maybe it turns out different. For sure. And not for nothing, too, Choi hit two of his three 2020 home runs off of Garrett Cole. He added another one in the postseason. So he does show up against like the best pitchers in baseball. I wonder if that ends up paying dividends against Walker Bueller potentially or whomever. I don't know if Choi even starts against Kershaw. I don't think he would. Yeah. Who does look tabbed as of this recording to start game one. All right, moving on. Let's talk about second base. This is actually an area of weakness for the Dodgers, which feels weird to say because you don't think that they have any areas of weakness, but... Kike Hernandez was their primary second baseman during the year, and he was so bad that they've made Chris Taylor their primary second baseman in the postseason. He started eight of their 12 games at second base, despite only starting there 11 times during the regular season. And I think a Taylor-Kike Hernandez platoon is perfectly fine. Taylor's a good hitter. Kike handles lefties well. They have not produced so far this postseason, but I think they're perfectly fine in tandem. They're just not as good as Brandon Lau is because despite the fact that he's been absolutely terrible this postseason going just six for 52, he's legitimately been one of the top 30 hitters in baseball since breaking into the league in 2018. He was one of the best hitters in the game this year. It's crazy the extent to which he's struggling in the postseason, but when he's on, he's incredibly dangerous and I'm giving the edge to the Rays for sure in this department. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit narrower in in my opinion. Kike Hernandez is coming off that like big game seven homer. Um, that might wake him up a little bit. But on the other side, as you're saying, Brandon Lau is just a better hitter. He has looked terrible this postseason. He just needs to put those series in the rearview mirror and just move on because since Kevin Cash has started moving him around the lineup, he has shown some signs of life. Batting leadoff in game four, he hit a home run. That seems to maybe have woken him up a bit. So we'll have to see going forward. But yeah, like, I, I guess I'm siding with you in narrow edge to Brandon Lau. But I don't know. Like, Kike Hernandez has been sneakily very good over his career, 2020 notwithstanding. 
if he's used correctly, he can be quite valuable. Yeah, like, I don't fair. think he's an everyday player. And I think the Dodgers have recognized that as well because they're only starting him against lefties, which is how he should be deployed. I'll also note that in addition to being a really good hitter, Brandon Lau is low-key one of the best base runners in the game. He's not like a base-stealing threat, but he does an exceptional job taking extra bases, and by Fangraph's base running runs, he was top 15 in the majors this year. Moving on, let's talk about third base. Dodgers have Justin Turner, who at the age of 35 is still kicking it, still one of the best hitters in the game. He's cooled off a little bit this postseason after uh, another superb regular season, but nobody would argue that Justin Turner isn't an elite hitter. And even though the returns are diminishing defensively and on the base paths, and even though it still looks like he's maybe a little bit compromised by that hamstring problem that cost him a couple weeks earlier this year, he's such a stud and such a linchpin in this offense and in this team. And I guess the Rays sort of have the antithesis of Justin Turner at third base. Maybe that's a little bit unfair, but they've pretty much anointed Joey Wendell their full-time third baseman after he only played about a third of his games at third base during the regular season. And it's because of his defense, which is superb. And even though, as you mentioned, he has uncorked a few wonky throws, he's also saved a number of runs in this postseason, and particularly in the American League Championship Series, with his defensive range. And he's a good little player on a team full of good little players. And while he hasn't really swung the bat well this postseason, for his career, he's pretty much a league average hitter. And all told, he's uh, actually pretty good. Yeah, it's extremely telling to me that Wendell has played for two teams in his career, the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays, because he's just that guy. Like, he's that guy that's going to play for those teams because you really have to squint to see the value he <laughs> gives you. And I I don't mean that to insult Wendell. Like you said, he snagged a couple incredible line drives, like game-saving line drives in those American League Championship Series games. But again, like, why is he hitting in the top two-thirds of this lineup? Like, why, why is he not the he, I mean, hitter? he had a 116 OPS plus this year. Yeah. He is better than I give him credit for. He's but, not a bad hitter. Yeah, he's not. You're right. He's just hit poorly. Yeah, in the postseason, he's 9 for 40 with no homers, no extra bases, actually. Anyways, that's all to say, heavy edge to Justin Turner and the Dodgers yeah. at third base. I do wonder if we'll see a little bit more... Yandy Diaz or Mike Brasso at third base in the World Series, especially if Wendell comes out in game one and puts up another offer. Although, frankly, I don't even know if he's going to start in game one because the Dodgers will likely be starting a left-hander. But I do wonder if maybe they'll be a little bit more aggressive with the matchups at third base, as exemplary as his defense has been. There's eight third basemen on this team. There's eight third basemen. There's seven second basemen. There's nine first basemen. <laughs> and it's- everyone on the roster plays third base including Diego Castillo, Blake Snell. But yes, none of those players are as good a third baseman as Justin Turner. I'm moving on. Let's talk about shortstop. Two really good shortstops in this series. Mm -hmm. Corey Seager, whose ascent to superstardom had sort of stalled over the last couple seasons, had a monster year this year, was one of the best hitters in the game, not merely for his position, and has continued to rake in the postseason. He's been the Dodgers' standout offensive performer in the playoffs and just took home NLCS MVP honors. And Willie Adamas, for his part, also had a really, really good season. He put up an OPS over 800. He was better offensively than Trevor Story. He was better than Francisco Lindor. And there 
are a couple red flags there. The batting average on balls in play was really high. The strikeout rate was ridiculous at 36.1%. I believe that was the third highest rate among qualified hitters. But he's a really good player. And he's also one of the few guys who, and I mentioned this on an earlier episode, is going to be in the Rays lineup every game of this series. I'm going to give the edge to Seager. He's better. But Adamus is, is still an impact player. Extremely, yeah. He's the guy I'm most confused when he hits below Joey Wendell in the lineup because Adamus is very, very good. He's been quieter, and maybe that's a result of his BABIP numbers coming back down to norm. He's 5 for 38 in the postseason. I didn't know he had this gear in him where he posted a 124 WRC plus over the season. Yeah, He looked unbelievable at, at times, and his defense is also just remarkable. He turned a couple double plays that did not seem turnable by almost any other shortstop in baseball however clear edge to Corey Seager who's an MVP caliber player he's like way way underappreciated for how great he is yeah Corey Seager's breakout has been one of the things that has or at least did during the regular season offset the disappointing production from Cody Bellinger from Max Muncie and I couldn't agree more I think he's a perennial National League MVP candidate moving forward yeah, I really do think he's the best shortstop in baseball right now. And that's such a remarkable thing. You think he's better than Fernando Tatis Jr.? Yeah. Yeah, I think wow. so. Like, there's so many good, great shortstops right now. There's Lindor. There's Correa. There's, I don't know, like uh, a billion shortstops. Trey Turner. Well, yeah. Tim Anderson. Xander Bogarts. So many great We're shortstops. We're in the second golden age of shortstops. And I think Corey Seager is the class of them. Wow. When healthy. All right, moving on. Let's talk about the outfield. As a collective, I'm not going to bury the lead here. The Dodgers have the better outfield. They have Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger in their outfield. They could have my grandmother in left field and would still have maybe the best outfield in the majors. And as it happens, their actual left fielder, AJ Pollock. Is your grandmother? (laughs) No, but he's great too. He had a career year this year. But an OPS of almost 900. It's, It's stupid how good their... Elfield is on both sides of the ball. Both Mookie Betts and Cody Ballinger made some ridiculous catches in the first three rounds of the postseason. And we know what they're capable of offensively. Those are two MVP winners. And they have the outfield advantage by a considerable margin. Having said that, the ongoing breakout of Randy Rosarena has dramatically improved Tampa Bay's outfield. Because before, honestly six weeks ago, it was kind of unimpressive it was like an ensemble of non-impact players who were deployed based on matchups and who like honestly couldn't really hit that much Austin Meadows Manuel Margot Hunter Renfro Kevin Kiermaier all of them were below average at the plate this year what they do do well of course is they catch the baseball they're almost to a man exceptional defensively Kevin Kiermaier's arguably the best defensive center fielder in the game Manuel Margot an exceptional outfielder but now all of a sudden with a Rosarena in left, Kiermaier in center, and someone in right. It's been Mark Goh mostly of late. Their outfield looks decent. What say you? Yeah, I'm with you 100%. It's clear edge to the Dodgers. And here's the thing about the Rays matchup and the Dodgers matchup too. Like You'd think maybe the defense goes slightly towards the Rays, but no, it doesn't. Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger are also incredibly elite defensively. So yeah, like you. Dodgers in a landslide. I do enjoy, though, that we're getting the Cuban Mookie bets against the American Randy Rosarena, though. That's, <laughs> that's an enjoyable series. I'm looking forward to it. All right, moving on. 
let's talk about each team's designated hitters because neither of them have a set everyday DH. The Dodgers have a surplus of good players and they pencil one of them into the DH spot on a given day. Sometimes it's Jock Peterson, sometimes it's Edwin Rios, sometimes it's Will Smith if Austin Barnes is catching, sometimes it's Justin Turner if he needs a day off his feet. Uh, But regardless, the Dodgers have a really good hitter in their DH spot every day. And the Rays also naturally don't have a full-time DH. They cycle in one of their platoon guys, Yoshi Tsutsugo, Austin Meadows, Yandy Diaz, whoever has the most favorable matchup. I, I, I will point out, though, while all three of those guys, Tsutsugo, Meadows, and Diaz, enjoyed varying levels of success this year, all of them were markedly worse at the plate in games where they DH'd than when they played the field. Hmm. Maybe that's just small sample noise, but the Rays' coalition of DHs weren't great during the regular season. They combined for a 751 OPS, and they haven't hit in the postseason either. Through 14 games, they're 7 for 52. That's a 135 batting average, and have put up a 526 OPS. It's strange that they're not getting a little bit more production out of their DH spot, because the hitters that they're using there primarily are pretty good. Yeah, exactly. It's where Kevin Cash weaponizes his platoon advantage arguably the most still got to give the edge to the Dodgers though I think yeah maybe so that we actually disagree here I think it's so close that I I think I'm gonna lean the Rays the one thing that has bugged me about Cash over the previous series though was giving the DH assignment to Meadows quite a lot and batting him leadoff like just because Meadows is your DH doesn't mean he's all of a sudden a good hitter like Meadows was bad this year and he continues to be bad in the postseason I don't really understand it well he was an all-star last year yeah but who cares I don't know like he's clearly doesn't have it and I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into small samples because last year as you said was like four times as long as this year by games played by Meadows he played 138 games in 2019 and was unbelievable played 36 games this year was markedly below average and like I don't know it's just, it's just like a frustrating part of Cash's management that sometimes he doesn't seem to fully see that one of his guys might just suck like <laughs> I get I get putting Brandon Lau lead off because he was so good during the season and he's hit a cold streak you're gonna try to wake him up but Meadows was bad during the season and bad in the postseason and you choose to hit him lead off in two crucial games against yeah. the Astros yeah well and- that's the thing about Kevin Cash's management it's that it frustrates literally everyone and then the Rays win <laughs> okay moving on let's talk about the rotation because this is a doozy right here and I honestly have no idea who has the edge both teams have three top end starters and a highly effective bulk guy or de facto fourth starter is Blake Snell appreciably better or worse than Walker Bueller what do you think exactly you don't know uh, you yeah. don't know and, yeah. and and you could say the same about every subsequent matchup I don't know if Kershaw is significantly markedly better or worse than Tyler Glasnow. I I don't know. Between Charlie Morton and Tony Gonsolin, Morton's looked great in the postseason. Gonsolin hasn't. Morton had a rough regular season. Gonsolin was incredible. And then you look at the bulk guys, and it's pretty close between Julio Urias and Ryan Yarbrough. But it, 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 it seems like a wash to me. I don't know. I honestly, dude, I texted five baseball experts, which is to say close personal friends of mine, to ask them <laughs> who they thought had the better rotation because I was incapable of making a determination by myself. And 
there was no consensus. What do no. you think? Who has the better rotation? Man, I, I don't know. You've you've phrased it in a way. This is why I love you as the host of this show because frequently you change my mind with your ramblings. And I was going like Rays close. It, it was close for me, but I was leaning Rays based almost entirely on depth. I thought the top two starters were pretty close to a wash in Kershaw and Bueller versus Snell and Glass now in whatever order you want to put them in. But I think I liked Morton over Gonsolin by a pretty fair margin. Hmm. And Yarbrow and Urias, probably a wash, maybe slightly Urias. So I guess I was going like almost entirely based on the wide margin set by Morton. I was leaning the Rays. However, at any point, Walker Bueller or Clayton Kershaw can be the best pitcher in baseball, it feels like. And you can't say that about Blake Snell or Tyler Glass now at this point. I know Blake Snell is a Cy Young winner. However, the way he's looked in the postseason has not been great. And Kevin Cash was kind of vindicated for taking him out early in that game. Like, he just doesn't have it. He's walking a lot of guys. He can't work deep into games. And I don't think you can say the same about Bueller and Kershaw if they have it. I don't know how deep Clayton Kershaw can work into games anymore. But when he's on, he can definitely get you six innings of shutout or one-run ball, and it seems like it's almost impossible for Blake Snell to get through six innings. This postseason, in four starts, he has not yet completed six innings, and some of that is by design, but some of that isn't, and it's just Kevin Cash responding to the fact that his ostensible ace is walking way too many guys, giving up home runs. In 19 and two-thirds innings in the postseason, Snell's issued 10 walks and given up four home runs. That's not terribly impressive. Tyler Glasnow, too, has gotten ripped a little bit in the postseason, given up a lot of home runs. Mm -hmm. And honestly, this is going to keep me up at night because I, 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 I can't decide. I honestly think Charlie Morton might be the Rays' second-best starter. I don't even know who their best starter is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's Charlie Morton. Honestly, it might actually be. The point is, both these teams are very, very deep in quality starting pitching. Yeah, for sure. Even Bueller has looked not especially elite at times, and mm -hmm. he still gets out of those jams. His whip in the league championship series against the Braves was a pretty ho-hum 136, but against the Braves lineup, that's actually probably pretty good. He still only allowed one earned run over 11 innings. He was still really good, even though at times he looked beatable. And you can't possibly say that you have confidence in Blake Snell if the bases are loaded in the second inning of a game to strike out the next two batters. I don't think you can say that the way Bueller did in game six. The difference, however, though, is that Kevin Cash would conceivably take out Blake Snell in the second inning. I believe, at least. I'm not being facetious, especially in the World Series. And I don't think Dave Roberts would do that to any of his top starters. Yeah, I think you're definitely correct. And I think that's a good segue into the bullpen. Man, is the Rays bullpen ever going to play an outsized role in this series? Because the Rays don't really believe in a starter-reliever paradigm. They just see all of their arms as one collective unit meant to be deployed in the most optimal way possible. And the Rays do that, deploy their bullpen with tremendous effectiveness. It's a testament to not only how nasty so many of their relievers are, as Kevin Cash said earlier this year, it's a stable full of guys who throw 98, but it's also a 
diverse set of arm actions and release points, and they cause fits for opposing hitters. They were top five in the league this year in fielding independent pitching. The Rays bullpen was. They were top five in the league this year in expected weighted on base average, and they have a reliever for every kind of hitter. And don't be surprised if the Rays bullpen ends up logging more innings in this series than the Rays starters. They have so many good arms, and they're not afraid to use them. I think that's the best way to put it. I think that's a great call that the relievers could work more than the starters in this series as well. And don't forget, too, that the Rays are entering this postseason with at least two of their best relievers sidelined with injury in Colin Pochet and Chaz Rowe, both of whom would have been crucial in their victories in October. At this point, though, I don't know who the best reliever is in the Rays' bullpen. All of them, at some point, had some trouble against the Astros. And that's to be expected. The Astros are really good. But, like, I don't know. Like, my confidence in the Rays' bullpen is dwindling. Uh, Wow. Yeah, I don't feel similarly because they have so many guys who I think can step up and handle high leverage, even if they happen to lose confidence in Pete Fairbanks or Nick Anderson or Diego Castillo. But to answer your question as to who I think their best reliever is right now, I think it's Diego Castillo. But you could convince me that it's like one of four guys. Yeah, and all those four guys, I think, would be the best reliever in the Dodgers bullpen. To Completely be fair. agree. I'm still, I'm still giving the edge to the Rays, but like, unless I see, honestly, unless I see Pete Fairbanks coming out of the bullpen, I'm like a little bit shook, a little bit worried. Wow. John You've Curtis already lost is, faith in Nick Anderson. Well, he gave up the home run to Carlos Correa. He and sure I know did. Carlos Correa was like the hottest po- player on the planet during the American League Championship Series, not named Randy Rosarena. Yeah. But who, who like, could have seen that Correa walk-off coming? Who? <laughs> Jonah Beardbaum, Esquire. That's whom. I hated you for it, but yeah, well, you did call it. Even a broken clock. But but yeah, okay, so let's let's talk about the Dodgers bullpen because, you know, you said that the Rays bullpen looks perhaps a little bit vulnerable to you. The Dodgers bullpen looks really vulnerable to me. Despite the fact that the Dodgers bullpen had tremendous regular season success, finishing with the second lowest ERA in the majors, they looked very shaky in the National League Championship Series. And they didn't look great in the division series either. And with Kenley Jansen suddenly dislodged from the closer role amid his waning velocity, I don't even know who the Dodgers' late-inning options are because they're all kind of dubious suspect in their own way. Bruce Zargratterall, who throws 101, doesn't miss bats. Neither does Pedro Baez. Neither does Dylan Floro. Neither does Blake Trinan, who gave up that go-ahead home run to Austin Riley in Game 1 of the NLCS in the ninth inning. You have Victor Gonzalez, but he's a rookie. He didn't really get much high leverage play this year. Joe Kelly is Joe Kelly. Incredibly erratic. Not a guy you really want to trust with a one-run lead in the eighth inning. And I really don't know who Dave Roberts is going to turn to in this series for late-inning duty. Do you have a sense of sort of what the pecking order is? I mean, what their pecking order is and what I would be doing seem to be two very different things because I don't think Dave Roberts is leaning nearly enough on rookie lefty Victor Gonzalez, who was lights out during the regular season, has run into some trouble during the postseason. He's not striking out guys as much as he was in the regular season, and he's walking a lot of guys. However, I just kind of expect him to figure it out. Like, I got to keep rolling with Victor Gonzalez because he just looks so nasty. 
And there are so few options for you as well. Bruce Dar Gratterall seems to be the guy Roberts trusts the most in the most high leverage moment without giving him a save opportunity very often. And I don't really blame him either because despite him not missing bats as much, his stuff does play up pretty well. And nobody else in the bullpen is like clamoring for that job. Jake McGee has looked terrible in his three outings. I don't know who else you go to in this bullpen. Like Pedro Baez is fine. He routinely gets the job done, but yeah, and he also struck out less than seven batters per nine innings during the regular season. Yeah, he's a bit of an enigma. I think he lulls the hitters to sleep. Uh, hitters, audiences. <laughs> so okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot. You're Dave Roberts. It's game one. Everyone's rested because he had the Monday off day. It's the seventh inning. Kershaw gave you six. Bless him. You have a one-run lead in the seventh. Who are you going to? Obviously, matchups matter, but... Yeah, I go Victor Gonzalez. Victor Gonzalez in the seventh. Okay, he gets through it. Who gets the eighth? Pedro Baez, probably. Pedro Baez, really, over Trinan, over... Yeah, he just, like, he does get the job done routinely, and Blake Trinan scares the daylights out of me, too. So so that means that you're either using Gratterall for the save in the ninth, or you're going back to Jansen, I would imagine. Yes, yeah. Who, who are you going to? Well, I would like both of them, but I, I'll go to Jansen first. So you're not going to use Gratterall at all? Correct. Gratterall is my, like, if Jansen walks the leadoff guy, we should warm up Gratterall now. That would be my plan. It's probably a bad plan. Well, by the time he's loose, you're going to have forfeited the lead, maybe. <laughs> yeah, probably. I, I do feel for him, because it's not fun to go into any series, and especially not the World Series, with no relievers you can really trust. I wonder if maybe they, they start using Dustin May in late relief as opposed to using him as an opener like they did in Game 7 and just use him as their new 7th or 8th inning guy. I think that would be a great idea, to be honest. I, I think Dustin May would thrive in a role where he's out there specifically attempting to miss bats because it's not something he especially does well. No. But like I think if you gave him a little bit of a reliever role and told him, like, okay, the role here is to strike this guy out, or he's really good at inducing ground balls as well. That's that's fine. That's something he does because he has a 100-mile-per-hour sinker. But, like, I really do think you need to stop giving Dustin May clean innings for a little bit. Just a little. Make him a guy who comes out of the pen with traffic on because I think he would thrive. Hmm. We'll see. But, yeah, ultimately, the Rays have a distinct advantage in this regard. So, who you got? Who's won the World Series, Michael? I have to stick with my pre-postseason prediction and stick with the Rays in seven, right? Like, I'm contractually obligated. However, I do kind of think it's like Dodgers in five. In five? Yeah, I, I think the Dodgers, it's it's their time. It really does feel that way. And they're just so clearly the best team in baseball and have been from the get-go, from the second they acquired Mookie Betts. Who's your World Series MVP? Am I going with my Rays in seven prediction or my Dodgers in five prediction? Let's stick with the Rays in seven prediction and, and let's go with... Let's go with Charlie Morton. Ground Chuck. I love it. Making two starts and shutting down the Dodgers. It's not inconceivable. Uh, I myself, I'm going to go with Dodgers in six. The drought ends in 2020. And the World Series MVP will be Will Smith. I like that a lot. And we didn't even talk about the Will Smith home run off Will Smith. Now he has to marry his (laughs) mother-in-law. It's true. (laughs) Those are the rules. (laughs) And on that note, 
I think that'll about do it for today's episode of Expand the Zone. Once more, before we sign off, a friendly reminder to download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. And if you dig the podcast, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. That's Michael. I'm Jonah. We'll see you next time on Expand the Zone.